Welcome, everyone. Everyone gathered here in the Zendo, and everyone who is attending this session at home, we're very aware of you, all at home, and very inspired by your practice. It's wonderful that you have all, this many people, have set aside a week and dedicated it to sinking deeply into what we call in Zen the great question of life and death. The first day of Sashin is always a kind of shakedown cruise as we become accustomed to sitting still and upright for much longer periods of time than we do at home or at the temples. Sitting still and upright but not tense, aware and alert but not anxious. Once again, we find that stable, quiet place within. And we pick a practice to renew our power of concentration. No one needs you now. No one needs you now. Put your ordinary responsibilities and worries aside so that you're free to just practice. So please sit still and use the accessories that we have in abundance in the hall and behind the screens in order to sit still. You can sit one period cross-legged on the floor and then change to the next period on a seiza bench or on a chair if you need to. Nobody is grading you on the amount of agony that you can endure. However, if you feel, I absolutely must move now, first count to ten, long, slow, ten breaths, and then move. And move all at once, quietly and all at once. What's more disturbing to the people around you is wiggling or constantly making small changes in your posture. One big move. We need to keep stretching ourselves in practice. We're capable of much more than we imagine, and we discover that again and again in practice. You can all stand up. You can also stand up quietly, but then you need to remain standing for the rest of the period until either the posture adjustment bell rings or walking meditation begins. The Buddha was quite clear and said that we can be awakened in any of the four postures, whether walking or standing, doing standing meditation, sitting or lying down. And one of the Buddha's disciples was even awakened mid-air as they were getting ready to lie down to go to sleep, but before their body actually touched the bed. So it could happen at any time. And the mysterious pivot turns. But a requirement is that our mind is quiet. A requirement is that our mind is out of the way. It is our mind, the tangle of thoughts in our mind, that is hiding the other aspect of reality from us, the other aspect that calls us to Sashin. Sitting still is part of the magic of Sashin in another way. 
Sitting still can burn up old karma. Whatever arises in your mind, just sit still. Watch it arise, exist for a while, change, and then inevitably fade away. All phenomena are like this if we don't cling to them or we don't push them away. You know the old saying, what you resist will persist. Also, what you cling to will persist, and what you ignore will, is likely to persist. So if anger arises, which often happens during sashin, don't add to it. Don't justify it. Don't criticize yourself for feeling angry. Just recognize it. Oh, hello, anger. Notice how anger feels in your body so you can recognize it earlier and earlier when it appears again. The earlier you recognize anger or any other afflictive emotion, jealousy, etc., the earlier you can recognize it and the body will signal it early, then the greater the chance that you can do something about it. Our practice gives us those few degrees of separation so that we're not sucked into all of the habit patterns of our body and heart-mind. If you don't move when anger arises and you don't feed it with thoughts, it will exist for a while and change and fade away. But you have to prove that for yourself. It's like all phenomenon, like itches. Itches are very interesting to practice with during session because we usually just unconsciously reach up and scratch. But when we're sitting still and not moving the body to help the mind not move, help the mind sit still, then we have this phenomenon we call an itch, which we can pay attention to or we can move our awareness to another part of our body. And inevitably, it will change and fade away. So all phenomenon, you can prove this for yourself. The sound of the rain, like a pleasant taste in our mouth when we're eating. They arise, they exist for a while, and then they fade away. So don't generate a karmic chain that keeps the afflictive thoughts and emotions alive. Notice when that begins to happen. A karmic chain that keeps the mistaken idea alive of a defective, lonely, afflicted, unsafe, unworthy, damaged self. Or a karmic chain of thoughts that keeps alive the mistaken idea of an exceptional talented, highly successful, popular, and politically correct self. As you do so, as you watch physical and mental emotional phenomenon arise, exist, and pass away, you're practicing four of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, what's happening now? Concentration, stay with it. Investigation into phenomena and equanimity, 
Mindfulness Concentration Investigation and Equanimity. In doing so, you're freeing yourself, yourself and others, from afflictive, unwholesome karmic chains. At the retreat that we did in Florida, they did some chants and remembrance phrases each day from the teaching of the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away almost exactly a year ago. One of the phrases that the timekeeper said each day as we would uh, do dedications, so every period actually, every sitting period, they would do a little dedication at the end. And one of the phrases that struck me was, may we be free from the inferiority complex, the superiority complex, and the equality complex. So those are really interesting to ponder because the inferiority complex is just the flip side of the superiority complex. Oh, I'm the worst is actually a superiority complex. May we be free from the inferiority complex, that's inner critic, of course, the superiority complex, which is the flip of the inferiority complex, and the equality complex. I come to every session thinking that my ability to concentrate is good, and that I discover that it's actually just like fair to middling. It's not a reason for blame, it's just a fact. I always begin sashin with following my breath. I always return to this most reliable aspect of concentration. Our breath is always with us, it's always guiding us into the present moment. It is always putting us down in the present moment. And I begin each day of practice with the four foundations of mindfulness, which I've been sharing the last few months um, during Sashin. Taking care of body, feeling tone. We could say emotions, but it's actually before emotions arise. And the mind ground and what appears on the mind ground. Concentration practice to me is like sharpening a knife when you have used it a lot and discover that it's become dull. When we use our mind a lot, multitasking, worrying, reading about the endless tragedies in the world, watching movies, etc., it can become dull and unfocused and inefficient. We need sustained concentration practice to sharpen it again. I used to have a visualization that helped me. And the visualization was actually of a sharpening stone. So you could try this, close your eyes and imagine a sharpening stone, one of those rectangular sharpening stones, and you're holding it. And then you have a knife, and you're stroking down as you breathe out on the sharpening stone. You're you're moving moving your mind down the sharpening stone like a knife. And as you move down, your point of concentration is the edge where the knife is touching the stone. 
You're holding your awareness right there, right in that point. And on the out-breath, you move down. And you pause, turn the knife, and move it back up. On the in-breath. But you're holding your awareness right on the place where the knife touches the stone. On the out-breath. Turning. In. Turning. Out. Turning. In. So if you're a visual person, that sort of um, support, it's called support, can help you with concentration practice. For other people, they have to develop um, other ways to stay with the breath. Perhaps the sensation of touch or temperature here at the nostrils, watching it change. So if we're a visual person or an auditory person or a somatic person, we can use what works for us creatively to concentrate. Each person should know what practice is most effective in focusing their mind and use it in the first few days of Sashin. Sharpen the tools. Sharpen the tools. The great question of life and death is a question that every human being eventually faces. Why was I born? What is my place in life? What is the best use of my talents and energy? What happens after I die? When we're young, we can ignore these questions, thinking that we have many decades left to ponder them. We can ignore it unless someone close to us dies, a parent, a sibling, a classmate, our child, an accident, a fatal illness, an overdose or a suicide occurs to someone we know. At one point, We had several residents living here whose parents had died by suicide. And in several cases, the residents were the one who found their parents' body. So that kind of incident in your life propels you into the question of life and death. One of our students experienced years of suffering after his older brother died. And his family was so bereft that they didn't have any resources to support the younger son. And he dealt with that by using alcohol to help numb the pain of that experience of his brothers whom he adored, his brother's death, and then his family's withdrawal. He practiced very intensely with the koan of life and death and eventually became a Zen teacher in the Rinzai lineage. When we become that close to death in our childhood, 
the veil that makes us able to deny how close death actually is. Carlos Castaneda told Don Juan, practice with death on your left shoulder, as if death is just sitting there on your left shoulder. When something like that happens, the veil that makes us able to deny how close death is lifts. And, but not completely, because we can't be satisfied by the usual diversions. We may go to parties or loud concerts, but we're able to glimpse the desperation of denial behind that frantic activity. Once at Larch Mountain, two people who eventually became some of our first residents went out on day off and they went to a bar in Portland. And I had a dream that night actually that they had gone to a bar. So the next morning I said, oh gosh, I had this weird dream that you went to a bar and they looked at each other like, whoa. (laughs) And um, I said, how was it? And they said, it was awful. They went thinking that it would be a kind of celebration and release and relief from the confines of training and so on. And they said, we just looked at people's eyes and they were pretending they were happy. And it was clear they weren't. And one of the two just left and sat outside, just couldn't bear it. So we may go to parties or bars or loud concerts, but we're able to glimpse the desperation, the denial behind frantic activity. Once I was leading a retreat in Alaska and I asked people how they had come to practice. And later a man came up to me privately and he told me a story of how he came to practice. When he was a young boy, he was out on his on the lawn in front of his house. He was about eight to 10. And he discovered a dead bird. We had a dead bird here just a few days ago, hit the window. And so he was sitting on the lawn and he picked up the bird and he held it in his hand and looked at it. And suddenly he realized that everything would die. Everyone would die, including his favorite uncle. That was kind of the cute part of it. But when he realized his favorite uncle would die, he just burst into tears and he began crying. And he couldn't stop. And for days he would cry off and on with this realization of the truth. And his parents didn't know what to do with him. And then he began to wonder as he looked around, how do adults live knowing this truth? How can they be happy knowing that this is true? And then he had an insight. His insight was, oh, they're pretending. That's how they get through life, they're pretending. And so he decided that he would pretend too for years, but it wasn't very satisfying. And then he read his first book on Buddhism as a young adult, and right there was the first noble truth. Suffering is universal if you're a human being. And he realized, oh, these are my people. They're not pretending anymore. So he joined his end group and he's practiced ever since. 
Where do we find the truth? We have so many ex-philosophy majors come to the monastery who thought that philosophy classes would help them find the truth. And what they found were competing schools of philosophy. I looked up in Wikipedia philosophy, and they and Wikipedia told me that there's no agreed upon definition of philosophy. So see if this portion from Wikipedia enlightens you. Quote, some approaches argue that there is a set of essential features shared by all parts of philosophy, while others see only weaker family resemblances or contend that it is merely an empty blanket term. Some definitions characterize philosophy in relation to its method, like pure reasoning. Others focus more on its topic, for example, as the study of the biggest patterns of the world as a whole, or as the attempt to answer the big questions. Some naturalist approaches, for example, see philosophy as an empirical yet very abstract science that is concerned with very wide-ranging empirical patterns instead of particular observations. A common theme is that philosophy is concerned with meaning, understanding, or the clarification of language. According to one view, philosophy is conceptual analysis, which involves finding the necessary and sufficient conditions for the application of concepts. So to all of you philosophy majors who weren't satisfied with the application of concepts, welcome. To continue, science-based definitions usually face the problem of explaining why philosophy in its long history has not made the type of progress as seen in the other sciences. This problem is avoided by seeing philosophy as an immature or provisional science. Okay. Sometimes I joke that we're a halfway house for recovering philosophy majors, but that's a step on the path, right? The desire to know the truth and find the way to live by that truth is what draws people to philosophy. But other people's answers or reading about other people's answers or debating other people's answers it's like eating other people's sandwiches. They don't satisfy us. What is true right now? What is true right now? What is telling you the truth right now? Your thoughts? Or the wind. Or your thoughts, or the delicate sensation of the breath moving in and out of the nostrils. What is telling you the truth? As you do walking meditation, what is telling you the truth? Your thoughts or the sensations on the bottoms of your feet? The coolness and then the warmth as you step on someone else's footsteps? The music of the floor? If we're interested in the truth, we need to ask, what is telling me the truth right now? 
what is covering up the truth right now. During this session, we will learn about the last days of the Buddha, what activities activities he chose to do during that time, what he taught during that time, and what he he taught about death in general. So uh, we find this story of the Buddha's uh, last days in the Mahaparinirvana Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Digha Nikaya, case 16. And the sutta opens with the Buddha being consulted about the likelihood of a king winning a war. We can think of the war on Ukraine today and all the predictions about who will win and how. So first we get the location and the cast of characters. Thus have I heard, this is Ananda speaking, once the Blessed One dwelt at Ragaja, Rajagaha, on the hill called Vulture's Peak. At that time, the king of Magadha, Ajrasatu, son of the Videhi queen, desired to wage war against the Vajis. The king spoke in this fashion, These Vajis, powerful and glorious as they are, I shall annihilate them, I shall make them perish, I shall utterly destroy them. And Ajitasattu, the king of Magadha, addressed his chief minister, the Brahmin Vasakara, saying, Come, Brahmin, go to the Blessed One, Pay homage in my name at his feet, wish him good health, strength, ease, vigor, and comfort, and speak thus. And then he tells him what to say to the Buddha. So you can imagine, you know, ambassadors now going back and forth over the war in Ukraine. And our president just made a surprise visit to Kiev. So this is what um, the ambassador says. Very well, sire, said the Brahmin Basakara, in assent to Ajitasattu, the king of Magadha. And he ordered a large number of magnificent carriages to be made ready, mounted one himself, and accompanied by the rest, drove out to Rajagaha toward Vulture's Peak. So we can imagine Mercedes, you know, whatever, going out. He went by carriage as far as the carriage could go, then dismounting, he approached the Blessed One on foot. After exchanging courteous greetings with the Blessed One, together with many pleasant words, he sat down at one side and addressed the Blessed One thus, Venerable Gotama, Ajisatu, the king of Magadha, pays homage at the feet of the Venerable Gotama and wishes him good health, strength, ease, vigor, and comfort. He desires to wage war against the Vajis, and he has spoken in this fashion. These Vajis, powerful and glorious as they are, I shall annihilate them. I shall make them perish. I shall utterly destroy them. At that time, the Venerable Ananda was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him. And then the Buddha turns to Ananda, who is his cousin and has been his personal secretary, has been with him and memorized everything that he's ever taught for years, 
So at this time, the Buddha is 80. This is his last year of life. So he's been teaching for 45 years. And he asks the Venerable Nanda, what have you heard, Ananda? Did the Vajis have frequent gatherings, and are their meetings well attended? I have heard, Lord, that this is so. And then he keeps questioning the Buddha about how the Vajis live their life, and how they live in accord, and how they support each other, and so on. And then after he hears about all the good qualities of the Vajis, he says, if this is the case, then the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. No harm can be done to the Vajis in battle by Magadha's king, Ajrisattu, except by treachery or discord. Again, we can think of the war on Ukraine. Has anything changed? And then next, the Buddha pertains about how these qualities pertain to the ordained and the long-term survival of the Sangha. So this is important to listen to. The Sangha, the Fourfold Sangha, has existed for over 2,560 years, but there's no guarantee, impermanence tells us there's no guarantee that we'll survive. It has changed form in every country it went to, in some cases fairly dramatically. In this Sangha, we keep some of the practices from my teacher, and he keeps kept some from his teacher, and so on. So there's some aspect of continuity, but what elements are the most important ones to keep to maintain continuity of the practice? So the Buddha ponders how these qualities pertain to the ordained and the long-term survival of the Sangha, and says, in essence, the growth of the Sangha is to be expected if they live in peace together, meet frequently in peace, disperse in peace, attend to the affairs of the Sangha in concord, show respect, honor and esteem and veneration toward their elders, and listen to them respectfully, do not succumb to craving, cherish forest depths for dwelling and meditation, establish themselves in mindfulness, welcome those who are joining the Sangha, Cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, into phenomena, which means external and internal phenomena, energy, bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So long as they cultivate awareness of impermanence, of egolessness, of relinquishment, of cessation, if they attend to each other in loving kindness, in deed, word, and thought, publicly and privately, and share with each other what has been offered to them, because they were always being offered gifts. Next, the Buddha said, Great becomes wisdom, the fruit of concentration, if it is supported by virtuous conduct and free from craving, aversion, and ignorance. So the Buddha is saying that out of concentration practice arises wisdom. If we're keeping the precepts, a lovely aspect of doing a retreat like this is we're keeping the precepts, and we're watching for greed, anger, and ignorance to arise. And then the Buddha continued walking on his last journey. So now I'd like to do a guided meditation. 
I think each day we'll do a guided meditation related to this theme of preparing for your own death. And what we've done in the past is you can either stay seated where you are or you can go over and lean against the wall. Don't lie down because it's too easy to fall asleep, especially the first day when we come with exhaustion we didn't know was accumulating. So you can take your cushion over, your big cushion, your zabaton, and put it against the wall and lean against the wall. Or the people in these two inner rows can lie down with their feet pointing towards each other if you want to. But don't do that if you think you'll fall asleep. And if you lie down, I would suggest that you lie down on your right side, which is how the Buddha lay uh, at night when he was meditating at night and how like the Thai forest monks still do at night on the full moon and the um, waning moon, dark of the moon. Uh, when they have sermons and talk about the Dharma all night long, they lie on their right side with their hands supporting their head like this. In the past, when we were all younger, including me, we did whole sessions where we lay um, in, the, in the Parinirvana posture for long periods of time. But if you're not used to it, it can become a bit uncomfortable. So if you want to stay seated how you are, it's totally fine. I'll give you a minute if you want to go lean against the wall. Or if you want to lie down on your right side, if you're in the middle here. Or those, you know, if you find a way to point your feet, you're on the ends of the rows and you want to lie down on your right side, you can try that. But please don't lie down on your back because of snoring. So please imagine that for several months you've been having symptoms, perhaps pain in parts of your body, weakness, some difficulty with bodily functions such as eating, digesting, urination, excretion, breathing, balance, difficulty exercising, or thinking clearly. You've noticed these symptoms and they've been increasing over time. And you've been worrying about them. Perhaps you looked them up on the internet. Now you've noticed some lumps in your neck and you wonder if they're swollen lymph nodes. So you make an appointment and now you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room wondering what's wrong with you. You look around and wonder what's wrong with the other people in the waiting room. Do they have something more serious than you do or less serious than what you have? Are they in pain? Are they anxious? Then the nurse calls you, checks your temperature, your blood pressure, your pulse, your height and your weight, and puts you in an exam room. 
You sit there for a while looking at all the things on the wall. And then the doctor comes in and you tell the doctor about all of your symptoms. The doctor examines you thoroughly and says, I'm not sure what this is, but I'm concerned about these swollen lymph nodes in your neck and your other symptoms. We need to do some tests and have you come back then for another appointment. You notice that the doctor looks worried. So you go to the lab and you have blood drawn. And you have a chest x-ray and maybe some other x-rays. You go home and over the next few days, you notice that you're feeling anxious about what the tests might show. You try not to dwell on it. You try not to dwell on your symptoms. But it's hard living in uncertainty. In a week, you go back for another visit, wait in the waiting room, have your vital signs taken, and then are taken to an exam room, and the doctor comes in. And the doctor says, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I have your results here, and I'm afraid it's not good news. You have a disease that has progressed beyond the stage where we can treat it. I estimate that you have about three to five years to live. Most of the time, you can be active and carry on your normal activities. But in the last six months, and we don't know exactly when that will be, that will become more and more difficult. We will keep you comfortable during that time. We're here to support you during that time. If there's anything that you want to take care of, this is the time to do it while you still have the strength and mental clarity. So you go home and the idea that you have only three to five years left to live begins to sink in. And you ask yourself, what would I like to do with my remaining time alive? And what would I like to throw overboard to release from my to-do list? Here are some categories to ponder work. Would you continue with the same job you have now? 
whatever that job is. Or would you retire? Or would you find a different job or a different volunteer job? If you have only three to five years left, then considering vacations and travel, is there somewhere you would like to go in the last three to five years of your life? What would you do there? Why would you go there? What do you hope would be the result? Would you take pictures to bring back or buy souvenirs to bring back? Is there someone somewhere in the world you would like to go before you die? The next category is creative arts. Would you like to spend more time creating things? Painting, doing ceramics, woodworking, cooking new recipes, sewing, composing or playing music? How much time would you like to devote to creative activities in your remaining few years of life? The next category is unfinished projects. Do you have any half-finished projects that you need to let go of or complete now? The next category is visiting people. Are there people you would like to contact or visit if you have only three to five years left to live? Family, old friends from school or college, mentors, perhaps to see them for the last or the next to the last time. Who would you like to visit with, spend time with? Reading. Are there books you would like to read before you can't concentrate or before you die? Are there movies you would like to see? series on Netflix? What would you like to consume in terms of reading, movies, media? In your last few years, next is buying things. 
are the things you would like to buy for yourself or others before you die. Which goes along with gifts. Are there possessions you would like to give away or put in your will to give away after you die to specific people if you only have three to five years to live? Things to buy, things to give away. The next category is gratitude. Are there people you would like to thank for what they gave you in your lifetime? If someone comes to mind, can you think of a few sentences that you would like to say to them or write to them? What's the essence of what you would like to say or write to them? And the last category is regrets. Hospice nurses say that this is the hardest thing for people who are dying to die with regrets. Are there any lingering regrets about things you've done or said in your life that you would like to handle or take care of before you die? How would you do that? It doesn't matter if the person is dead or estranged from you you can still do something to take care of it. What would you do or say to take care of regrets lodged in your heart? So now we'll bring this meditation on three to five years left to live to a close so you can come back into your apparently healthy body Stretch it or move it, and sit back up again. So it's important to do exercises like this so that we can take care of things. We had um, members years ago uh, who took into their home a friend who was dying. And she asked them to summon her friends, and then she essentially dumped all of her unfinished business on all of those people who came to visit her and people stopped coming to visit her because she would assign tasks to each one who came of things that she wanted to take care of but couldn't do anymore. And that became a burden for everyone. So we would like to die without those burdens, without those regrets. And now is the time where we're alive to recognize some of those and take care of them. Thank you.